This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 5th of August 2023. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through the global papers with Simon Brooke. Then... London's Canary Wharf is an area of towering high-rise offices and striking residential blocks. So a bright pink disco kiosk stands out. We'll take you to the Fandango Discoteca. First, though, here's the news. West African defence chiefs have drawn up a plan for military action if Niger's coup is not overturned by tomorrow, the regional bloc said after mediation failed in a crisis that threatens regional security and has drawn in global powers. The Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, has given Niger's coup leaders until Sunday to step down and reinstate the elected president, Mohamed Bazoum. Talks starting in Saudi Arabia this weekend to find a peaceful settlement to end Russia's war in Ukraine will be difficult. But Kyiv is counting on persuading more countries to back its peace formula, the head of Kyiv's delegation said. Ukraine and its allies hope the meeting of national security advisers and other senior officials from some 40 countries, but not Russia, will agree on key principles on how to end Russia's war in Ukraine. And as the Hollywood writers' strike approaches the 100-day mark, Writers Guild of America negotiators met on Friday with representatives of the major studios for the first time in three months to discuss whether contract talks can resume. The mayor of Los Angeles said she was encouraged by the reopening of communication as the Hollywood writers' and actors' dual strikes negatively impact the economy. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm trying to sound warm and welcoming, but actually there is a huge storm outside, or at least it's brewing. We've been told of extreme danger, Simon Brook, have we not? Yeah, apparently, but also uh, on the tube today, I was looking at signs saying, if you feel hot or in this extremely hot weather, please bring a bottle of water. I mean, <laughs> what planet is London transport on, I wonder? I mean, it is it is pretty odd, though, isn't it? And when and, I mean, everybody keeps saying at least we're not boiling as, as they are yeah. in in Europe, but but there are these severe weather warnings for today across England and Wales. And so I think that's just for any of our local listeners, do look out because it looks pretty horrible. Considering it's August, it just seems desperately unfair, doesn't it, as well? (laughs) It does. does, It feels sort of, when you're outside, it feels a little bit kind of (laughs) pre-apocalyptic. Especially when it's so dark this morning as well. It should be a sun-filled, glorious morning in the middle of a British summer, shouldn't it? Yeah. And it, as you say, it looks like something from Silo on, on <laughs> Apple TV or something. Yeah, glowering skies. Uh, so in our headlines, we're talking about Niger and what's what's going on there and the fact that uh, ECOWAS has drawn up a plan for possible military action. Now, this is a story we've been following, uh, well, since, since the coup happened uh, the week before last, uh, last week. Um, and... Uh, it is. It has global ramifications. Uh, so uh, there's some very good reporting on it in the Guardian today. Yeah, the Guardian um, looking at, as you say, the the, the global ramifications, the uh, concerns uh, for the rest of the world, because I think there might be 
here in the West, a temptation just to look at this and think, here we go again. But I think what's interesting here is obviously you've got the the French post-colonial element here. So that has obviously uh, gripped a lot of the media in France. There are also questions about... Um, the concerns here about whether in this sort of if this becomes a failed state um that it could become a hotbed of a hotbed of islamism and we could see a sort of uh, uh you know terrorist uh, activity uh, spilling out of niger and and then coming to the rest of the uh, to the world and affecting europe and the us um, there are other things to sort of consider. Obviously, the, the Guardian points out that you know there are the, the twenty, roughly twenty-seven million uh, inhabitants of the country to think about. But also, there are considerations, uh, as is pointed out elsewhere. You know, Niger is responsible, for instance, for seven percent of the world's production of uranium. Um, it does have these valuable local resources, and also, I think there's a feeling generally that if Niger does succumb to this uh, putsch, uh, and this is another. Um, African democracy toppled in this way, you know, what could be the domino effect? Could other countries nearby um, suffer something similar? And also, I think there's been a lot of... Um, Most of them already have. Well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. and, and then, you know, th- this could just make that worse, couldn't it? This was supposed to be exactly the sort of the beacon, wasn't it, of uh, liberal, stable democracy, or at least the kind of uh, nascent state of it anyway. And I think there's a, a concern here. And as you say, ECOWAS, the, uh, the, um, the, the local collection of states here, um, just looking at other countries ar- around the the area, Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea, um, that have um, suffered because of military coups and things. And so I think, as I say, there's a real concern here that what the situation in Niger means, not just for West Africa, but for the rest of the world. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I think it's really telling that ECOWAS is now talking about possible military action. Now, there are US and French and I think Italian troops all stationed in Niger, uh, but the the, the the, the, the putschists have suspended all military agreements with France, lots of French troops there. Uh, so that's off the table. We don't know what's going to happen to those troops. Will they go? It's quite interesting that they are actually in situ. Uh, but there's also a worry then that if there is any kind of military move, probably led by Nigeria, that uh, that Mali, as you say, and Burkina Faso and Guinea would join in on, on the Niger side. Uh, so, I mean, this this could be a very big spark point. It could be. And I think also, of course, this comes in the wake of the meeting of African states and President Putin. Uh, and uh, the Daily Maverick in the in South Africa is looking at the fact that even though Putin was slightly humbled uh, by the, you know, the African states, that he doesn't have the prestige he had uh, perhaps even just a few weeks ago pre um, his own uh, failed putsch, if you like, that he nearly suffered as, at the hands of uh, Evgeny Prigozhin. Uh, it is Pr- uh, Prigozhin's Wagner Group, Wagner Group, which is very much uh, active now in Africa. So I think that's obviously another concern, isn't it? That yeah. Prigozhin and his acolytes must be looking at the situation in Niger and just thinking, what opportunities are there, uh, you know, for for us to make some money? cause some trouble and, and destabilise a Western, previously Western-backed country. Well, on the 3rd of August, so a couple of days ago, it was uh, Niger Independence Day uh, from 1960 uh, and thousands of people went out on the street. They were Some of them were waving giant Russian flags. They were chanting anti-French slogans. I mean, it, it, very much Russia is on everybody's minds, I think, in, in the region. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting that earlier this week, um, the ousted president... Um, uh, uh, 
wrote a, a, an op-ed piece uh, for the Washington Post um, talking about the fact that, uh, just emphasising the fact that his democratically elected government had been um, toppled and really just making the point that, um, you know, uh, that this is really... And it's interesting, the fact that it is in the Washington Post. Obviously, uh, as I say, the, the former president, Mohammed uh, Bazoum, uh, who was... A, overthrown by the very people who are supposed to protect and uphold his office is now uh, obviously very much appealing to the West um, with this this piece in the Washington Post. And I think it's obvious that, again, he's thinking that he needs, not just for his own political um, success and, and you know, uh, his own uh, personal fortunes or whatever, but I think he's realising that there is an opportunity here to, to reach out to the West and say something needs to be done. What that something is, of course, is very difficult. As you say, there are troops in the area. So, does the West, do Western allies of uh, President Bazoum, uh, do they imp- increase their forces or whatever, especially when you think of the situation in Europe with Ukraine and Russia? Um, it's that question, isn't it? How much, how many resources can we afford to uh, t- to allocate to this both economically and in terms of political capital? And also, is the danger then that we are sort of ramping things up and, and looking for, you know, prompting an even worse uh, conflict here. Mm. And if we look at the country next door, Senegal, another kind of bastion of democracy and freedom, uh, that uh, clamped down on an opposition leader this week. So uh, the internet was suspended, he was arrested, there were all sorts of violent demonstrations there. Senegal has said that if ECOWAS goes in militarily, it will join in uh, uh, against Niger. There's been one coup too many, said the leader, I think the foreign minister of Senegal. But what was interesting was that for a couple of days, it looked like you might then be looking at an unbroken belt across the Sahel from 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 the Red Sea to the Atlantic of just very very insecure countries uh, jihadists and a lot of uh, a lot of problems there from for, for a sort of unbroken stretch of about 6000 square kilometers and it is that it is as you say it's that geographical element isn't it the fact that it goes across the whole of North Africa and then just slightly to the north of that you've got the Mediterranean and then you've got Europe and I think that is presumably why this is now uh, occupying the inboxes, not just of President Macron, who was quoted as criticising the French uh, mili- uh, MI- uh, equivalent of MI6, the intelligence services for failing to predict this coup, but also other countries who will be looking at it and thinking, what could this massive destabilisation mean, as I say, for terrorism, for trade, for immigration as well, if you get huge hordes of people who are fleeing military regimes, torture, murder, rape, you know, all the things that go very much with this instability what effect is that going to have on um you know immigration um and especially of course as we move out of the summer into the autumn and the winter where uh getting on a small boat and trying to get across the mediterranean is even more dangerous so i think there's probably for a number of reasons both the big picture the humanitarian thing but also given the focus we've had in the uk on small boats you've got the same thing sort of obviously in in italy as well uh concern about those uh, asylum seekers and stuff um then you know that there's also the sort of the smaller political element as well that i think a lot of uh, leaders in europe will be very concerned about absolutely although you know we uh, sit here and criticize african countries for for, for the, their insurrections of course that happened in america or very nearly did absolutely. Yeah. uh so let's let's turn now to donald trump's trial because a very good uh, analytical piece here in the New York Times. 
Yeah, exactly. So it's exploring the strategy of Jack Smith, the special counsel, um, in who is accusing, you know, involved in the uh, in the Trump indictment. Um, uh, so the idea is that, according to the the Washington, uh, sorry, the so New York Times, which is exploring, as you say, this uh, the way he's approaching the case, uh, Smith has changed the same story. Sorry, charged the same story, i.e., of uh, uh, Trump's assault on the electoral process, three different ways. The charges are novel applications, according to the New York Times, of criminal laws to unprecedented circumstances, heightening legal risks. But Mr. Smith's tactic gives him multiple paths in obtaining and upholding a guilty verdict. Um, and there's a quote from a, a law professor at Georgetown University, Julie O'Sullivan, who's also a former federal prosecutor. And she says, you want to have multiple charges that are applicable or provable on the same evidence so that if uh, on appeal you lose one, then at least you have the conviction. So I think the idea is that, that uh, I mean, the pressure on Jack Smith must be incredible, mustn't it? But he's obviously going at this from uh, the idea of, uh, of putting lots of irons in the fire, if you want, legally anyway, uh, so that if one drops out or, or you know, or, or uh, Trump lo- wins one again on appeal, then at least there are still other opportunities for for smith to get this prosecution that he this successful conviction sorry that he so much wants yeah i mean and of course the story is everywhere with lots and lots of reaction from uh, all sides of, of the political divide uh, one interesting piece in the washington post says that if trump is convicted secret service protection may be an obstacle to imprisonment because he can keep secret service protection for life even if he were to be convicted and sentenced to prison uh, and so it throws up all sorts the, the practicalities are fascinating, and if he's he, if he is successful and is he elected president of the United States, but he's also convicted, then that would mean you'd have the bizarre situation where the uh, the, uh, the, the 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 head of the Supreme Court would have to go to this prison, as you say, probably surrounded by uh, the, the the now re-elected president's security detail or whatever, and swear him in as president. So it would be instead of it happening, uh, you know, uh, in in the mall in, in Washington. DC with all the pomp and ceremony it would happen in a prison and then of course the question is that once he's the moment that Trump is um sworn in as president again does he then pardon himself or put the wheels in motion anyway for a pardon and then he's out of prison again so there are all kinds of um, difficult sort of situations to consider and I think what's interesting about this is if you don't want to see Donald Trump elected or re-elected legally morally he probably should be prosecuted certainly does seem quite a lot lot of evidence doesn't there doesn't there but as i say if you if you don't want to see him elected politically practically actually you don't really want to go ahead with this prosecution because one thing is for sure it does certainly seem to be doing great things for his poll numbers and certainly uh, the way things are at the moment um it does look like we would be will be heading for a trump Biden um, fight, you know, the next election. A lot of it depends on timing, doesn't it, with the, with this case and so on. A uh, very interesting comment uh, from Chuck Rosenberg. So he's a, a former top federal prosecutor uh, and he was asked, could Trump face prison? He said, theoretically, yes, and practically, no. And I think that's, that's I mean, it just would be too difficult, wouldn't it? How, how would you yeah. possibly protect him? Uh, I think what's also interesting about exactly the sort of, even with the, the run-up to the election, that how would you fight an election campaign from prison if he is if one of these prosecution goes ahead before the actual election itself which you probably will do in in November 
next year. So um, it would be slightly bizarre. I think what's interesting as well is looking at the coverage. To some extent, it does come down to money, actually, that obviously Trump is raising more money as as, uh, his supporters see him as a martyr or whatever. But the question is, where is that money going? And if that money does seem to be going more into his defence fund than his electoral fund, his campaigning fund, then I think there will be people who are beginning to, to you know, ask about whether this is a, a good sort of investment, really, for their, uh, you know, for their money. Um, and certainly some of the political action committees are, are already really seeing their funds uh, wound down you know as they're spending more and more money uh, on this uh, this defense yeah now of course trump's reaction has just been to kind of tweet things or whatever it is on his own network now in all capitals and people deal with their melancholy in different ways but one of the more surprising methods might be to dance away your grief at a purpose-built mini disco the fandango discotheca is just that venue and currently in london before making its way around europe with stops in Germany and the Netherlands. Well, Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs went along to find out more. London's Canary Wharf is an area of towering high-rise offices and striking residential blocks. It's one of the city's slicker districts in which you're surrounded by glass and steel. So a bright pink disco kiosk stands out. We have sound built into the floor. It's a mini disco, probably the smallest disco in London, I'd say. And it's a kiosk. It has a mirrored exterior, um, so you can see out, but people can't see in. And it's kind of a 70s palette just to reflect the era um, in which the, the booths were designed. Annie Frost-Nicholson is a multidisciplinary artist whose work focuses on the human condition and smashing taboos. Here she's describing the Fandango Discoteca, which facilitates grief raves. And the structure itself is a piece of architectural history. This has been a really beautiful journey, really. So we got in touch with K67, who restore the the kiosks, and they were kind of all over Eastern Europe in the, like, 70s and 80s. They were built in the late 60s by an architect called Sasha Mechtig, who we met as well in Berlin. So it's been a really beautiful journey. He's in his late 80s. He loves dancing. He really loves the project, and they've never made a disco. They've made many things with the kiosk, but they've never made a disco. So there's a, you know, they're obviously architectural gems, and we're just really thrilled that we can continue this lineage and also kind of create something new from something that, you know, that is such a yeah, beautiful design piece. Working alongside Annie is Carly Attridge, the founder of The Loss Project. She creates alternative spaces for others to explore grief and loss. So we say it's a mini disco. It's a space where you can come and shake out grief or anxiety, release anything you need to, Um, But really come and create a joyful space and just completely let go. And um, you can request a song, you can play any song you like. But I think, yeah, it's that sense of uh, cathartic release is really what it's about. The kiosk isn't just for those who've lost someone. It can be for anyone going through some kind of difficult time. It doesn't matter if that's bereavement or a breakup, political rage or climate anxiety. As I arrived at the Fandango Discoteca, three teenagers were tumbling out of the booth, giggling as they thanked Carly and Annie for their little afternoon dance break. Annie and Carly have found that giving people the space to let loose and dance out their feelings can have a transformative effect. 
I think there's something really powerful in being able to express the inexpressible. Um, so something that you might not be able to say through words, you can use your body for instead. And I think from our previous collaboration, we really observed the public wanting to use their bodies in different ways and to, yeah, have a different outlet to process some of these really complex human experiences. And it was incredible today. Um, this lady came she put on two songs for her best friend who died earlier in the year and just came and shook the kiosk and let it all out and it was it's just i think people are really surprised at what can be achieved just through coming and dancing but it's it's not just movement it kind of creates something it's an individual expression of something that is shared through coming and telling us what their story is or coming out and being like wow that was so amazing or I feel buzzing now like oh I'm gonna tell everyone about it I think people have been surprised at how amazing they've felt through doing it because I think it's it's quite an unusual concept in in a way for some people but yeah really powerful it's kind of returning to using our bodies in a way visitors to the discotheca can choose any song they'd like to listen to but there's also a dedicated soundtrack created by rom this is what you've been hearing in this piece it's an ode to european discos to all those we may have lost and all the problems the dance floor can help us process Many thanks there to Monocle Sophie Monaghan Coombs for that report. And music does, it is a great way of letting out completely things, isn't it, it? It, it's, it it affects your brain on a completely different level i think isn't it you know it's, it's sort of emotional and transcendental in a way isn't it so, yeah absolutely yeah. i wonder though if that's the same for all creatures <laughs> no i mean i really Why do, do you say that <laughs> are you pointing to my slightly inelegant segue into a dog story it was a beautiful <laughs> beautiful segue but you didn't absolutely. let me get there <laughs> Uh, lots of doggy things to say. Firstly, yes. you must have a look at our um, Monocle Minute, our weekend edition Monocle Minute. Oh, I will, definitely. Because Andrew Tucker's just driven to yeah. um, uh, Mallorca. No, wherever yeah. it is he goes to. Yeah, uh, somewhere sunny, yeah. unlike London. Yeah, <laughs> With his dog, uh, yeah. Macy. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, she seemed to she seems to love it on the on on the you know in the car and going along and everybody along the way seems to to like her. I think the ferry she had a bit of a sleepless night. But. Oh no! <laughs> but, but dogs do quite often like cars, don't they? And somebody pointed out why is it if you uh, a dog will quite often stick their head out of the window and have that air blasting in their face and that if you they love it and then but if you try blowing the dog's face they, they hate, hate it. it. So yeah. trying to recreate that car experience just doesn't work for yeah. some reason, does it? I I now don't let my dog stick her head out the window and this comes from a really really traumatic. Oh, no experience oh, which is I used to have Dalmatians this is years ago when I lived in Zimbabwe and we were driving uh, to the beach in Mozambique uh, and Mozambique as, as you recall had a war for many well, course, as did Zimbabwe yeah. but, but Mozambique's war went on for a, a lot longer and we were driving there with the Dalmatians in the back and one of them saw a baboon in the bush so it jumped out of the car uh, and so I jumped out of the car after it and ran off into the bush to catch the dog. I didn't have any shoes on because why would you in the car? No, exactly. Um, and then this, this UN truck pulls up and just starts screaming at us. And we were in a minefield. 
literally yeah. oh my god so <laughs> we, the dog would be well, yeah i mean i mean it was just crazy anyway it was yeah. it, it all turned yeah. out for the best yeah thank goodness <laughs> but but very not the kind of experience you want to repeat really right. is it no which is quite a long-winded yeah. way to get into the story from the independent <laughs> that i really really want to cover because a japanese man has spent approximately two million yen on a custom-made collie costume uh now he uh has apparently always wanted to be a dog that was his he says as from being a small child he wanted to be a dog uh and so he he's got this company called zepet or zepet uh who creates sculptures and models for movies and commercials to make a costume mm-hmm. these are incredible pictures simon they are i mean absolutely when i saw that first picture here i just thought oh right oh right this is him then because it does look exactly like a dog isn't it it's just um it's uh, toko as his name is as say is is completely authentic it's very convincing the the video we've got of him walking i'm not sure i think it does look a little bit like a man pretending to be a dog <laughs> and there is, is a picture of him is. drinking a coke too yes, which and dogs shaving don't his legs oh yeah that's true yeah <laughs> uh yeah so that i don't i i, I was uh, slightly skeptical about but do you know the more i think about it uh, the other day i was having a stressful time at work and i looked across at working from home as i do looked across at the the, the dog basket and there's our dog fast asleep and i just thought your life consists of uh, treats, sleeping, walking, peeing, sniffing, and that's all you want. And you have a wonderful life. And this idea of a dog's life, it's absolutely blissful, isn't it? So in a way, I can completely understand why Taco <laughs> might want to go. You throw the coke in as well, if that's his particular tipple. And yeah, it's a dream come true, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. Well, a dream come true for somebody in Edinburgh. Now, of course, it's the Edinburgh Fringe Festival at the moment. Big part of that is comedy. Uh, and there's a, this lovely story today in, in, the, in the Guardian about um, uh, a tearful actor. She One woman show and nobody came. It's so sad. It is a, literally a one-woman show because one woman on the stage and, well, that was it. Nobody in the audience. Yeah. Georgie Greer has this uh, one-woman show um, which uh, is about interrogating the idea of happy ever afters. Um, yeah, but as you say, tragically, um, when she turned up for her performance, she discovered that she was literally the only person um, in the in the theatre and she tweeted a message saying, there was one person in my audience today when I performed my one-woman... Oh, sorry, one-woman. Yes, one one person in the audience anyway. When I performed my one woman play Sunsets, uh, it's fine, isn't it? It's fine. But obviously it wasn't for her very emotional and upset. And I think what's really nice is that, um, you know, show business is not necessarily known for its generosity and, and, uh, uh, you know, and sense of brotherly, sisterly love or whatever. But a lovely example of here, uh, comedian Jason Manford and other big names, according to The Times, um, saw this and spread the word. And the following night, or a couple of nights later anyway, uh, following uh, his message of video video message of support um, and reassuring her that he'd had a similar experience when he performed for the first time at, uh, at the, the, uh, the Edinburgh Festival. He said, don't worry. Hi, George, he said, it's uh, Jason Manford here. I don't know you. You don't know me, but your little picture and message popped up in my Twitter. So I thought I'd drop your message. Um, and then there's, yeah. Uh, as I say, it's wonderful to see that so many people came along uh, to to actually watch the show and support it. And it was totally sold out. That's just wonderful, isn't, isn't it? it? Lovely. And I'm not going to suggest for a minute that it was a clever bit of PR and marketing by her, because I'm sure it wasn't. But it is, as I say, given an industry which can be very cruel and uh, you know and selfish sometimes. It's a lovely, uh, heartwarming story, isn't it? Really, it is. Have you ever performed? I did once, actually. Yeah. At uh, I was persuaded to be in a play uh, and we had exactly, to be honest, we had some of the similar experience. We turned up and they were like, 
two friends and a relative there or something in the audience or whatever and before we went on there was a big argument you were going to do the publicity no you said you were going to do the publicity you were going to tell people about it so anyway there were only as I say about two or three people in the audience but they certainly made their presence felt anyway yeah, but I wouldn't I wouldn't do it again <laughs> it is absolutely heartbreaking when that happens I think I went to see A Strange Loop this week uh, and this is this um, big sort of um, queer black uh, really large guy and it's a mm. musical yeah. it's had fantastic reviews right. it's won a Pulitzer it's just yeah. I just didn't love it really it's funny that isn't it um, and then you feel slightly obliged that you should or is it because it is ho- overhyped or something are you going with such yeah. great expectations that it's always going to fall short I don't know I, perhaps that was it perhaps my yeah. expectations were just too large but it, I, I felt kind of guilty not loving yes, it because when everybody else says it's every, wonderful everybody else and does. if you're really weak minded like me when people, you go yeah I loved it as well no you didn't say you hate it I loved it it was great or whatever <laughs> and it's like Barbie and Oppenheimer no I haven't seen them yet and I'm really? the one person in Britain okay. who hasn't seen either you do need to do that I do don't I yeah I'm sorry but you do well, you, you can pick one you don't have to see both yeah and you know which one it will be given that Oppenheimer's three hours long exactly Uh, (laughs) apparently there's a very good uh, documentary on Oppenheimer called The Lives of Oppenheimer if you don't fancy three hours that might be good uh, in the thing and it's on television so that that way you get to kind of at least you get it. the Oppenheimer story. The other <laughs> thing I was thinking, I might wait until it's streaming on, you know, o- online or whatever. Then I can watch like an hour, an hour and a half, go and get a cup of tea, stretch my legs, and then come back yeah. and do, which is a bit lightweight, isn't it? But, but you um, do need to go to the cinema to see Barbie because I can tell that you would look fantastic dressed in pink. <laughs> I will make sure I'm wearing pink. I'll bring my nieces and we'll we'll have a pink fest for Barbie, definitely. Simon, thank you very <laughs> thank much you. for being with us today. That's Simon Brook. And that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our studio engineer in London, Callum McLean. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin and thank you for listening.